You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. To what extent is the Jesus we meet in the Gospels the same Jesus who actually walked the earth? The pursuit of the answer to this question has engaged biblical scholars for over 200 years now. The quest for the historical Jesus continues amongst New Testament scholars to this day. We're glad to have back with us Dr. Dale Allison, professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, to discuss his book on this topic entitled, The Historical Christ and the Theological Jesus. Welcome, Dr. Allison, back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Happy to be here this afternoon, David. Well, I've talked with you before, and our topics have been kind of wide-ranging about mystical experiences in your book uh, that really dealt with the the, the experience of death and how humans uh, process that and think about that. But really, you uh, are known mostly or primarily as a New Testament scholar who has done a great deal of research into the, the Jesus tradition and engaged in this, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you want to say you've engaged in the quest for the historical Jesus uh, or how you might want to put that. Maybe I just start, how do you characterize the way your focused New Testament scholarship has, has proceeded? Well, I would say I'm a participant in this so-called quest, and I have been a interested and active spectator since I was a teenager. So I actually read Albert Schweitzer's uh, Quest of the Historical Jesus in my senior year of high school, and I've been interested in this topic ever since. So I, I, I'm fortunate I got interested in a field and then I was able to uh, write about it myself. Well, uh, towards the beginning of the book, you admit what a daunting task it actually is to get behind the text of the New Testament and discern what actually came from the lips of Jesus <laughs> and what may have been attributed to him later by his pious followers. You wrote, I must confess, however, that with every year of further contemplation, I become more uncertain about anyone's ability, including my own, cleanly to extricate Jesus from his interpreters. Matthew 13 assigns to angels the task of separating the good fish from the bad fish, and I think it may take supernatural talent to go through the net of tradition and throw out what does not come from Jesus. And I wonder if you could say more about that. Sure. So there's a there's an academic context for this, and that is when I was in graduate school, and that's going back now to the 1970s and 1980s, mm -hmm. I was taught that the way you recover Jesus is by using what are called the criteria of uh, authenticity. So mm -hmm. there are these tools or these tests, and you take the tradition apart, uh, and then you pass each particular saying or each particular event through these criteria, and then the authentic Jesus comes out at the end of the, the gauntlet, right? And I decided after doing that for maybe 20 years or so, that it wasn't the right way to do things. And one of the, the factors 
is that I agree with Origen. Origen's one of my heroes for several reasons, but I think he got history right. And what he says is that it's really hard to show that something happened, even if it didn't, even if it did happen. It's really hard to show that it happened, even if it happened. So one of the illustrations I always use for this is the pigs going off the cliff in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, even if the pigs went off the cliff, how can we 2,000 years ago establish this? All we have is a story in, you know, a gospel. Uh, how, how can you prove this? Well, I don't think anyone can prove that it didn't happen. I don't think anyone can prove, prove right, to the satisfaction of everybody that it did happen. And I think this is the case with lots of items in the tradition. So what happened to me is I lived with these criteria for a while. And then I decided maybe they work for some parts of the tradition, but for much of it, I decided the majority, they're just not that good. And the results actually come from the people who are wielding the tools, not from the tools themselves. So you can use a hammer to do many different things, but it it depends on who's using the hammer, right? And what intent Mm -hmm. they have. So I became disillusioned with these traditional criteria. And that's part of the context for that statement. Another thing is that I realized at some point that this clean division between fiction and fact or between history and non-history just doesn't work very well. So, for example, uh, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he says, Jesus came into Galilee and he was preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand and he was asking people to repent and believe in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so I know scholars who will go through the Gospel of Mark and they'll say, well, this sounds very Markan to me. I don't think it's a translation of an Aramaic sentence Jesus uttered, and therefore I'm going to ignore it. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It's just from Mark. But I look at it and I, can, and I say, well, even if it's not a translation from the Aramaic, this is Mark who's looking at all these traditions that he has and knows about, and he's giving it his summary, and I think his summary is correct. So let's just say Jesus didn't utter some exact equivalent in Aramaic. I don't think it matters at all. I think it's still an accurate representation of of what he was up to. And this sort of thing comes up um, again and again and again. So I'm one who looks at the baptismal narrative and thinks that it's been embroidered with Christian ideas, but I still think Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And for all I know, it was a very important uh, event in his life. Maybe it was even something like a prophetic calling. But I don't look at the event and I say it's 100% fiction or 100% fact. I look at it and say, well, there's an historical memory here, but I think it's been written up for certain theological ends. Maybe, maybe that's too fancy. Let me put it this way. I've heard stories about me that aren't true. <laughs> Nonetheless, they caught my character accurately. So I have the reputation of being an absent-minded professor. And I've heard a couple of stories about Dale Allison, the absent-minded professor. And they didn't happen. They weren't true. But they were true because they caught my character. And so once you begin thinking along these lines, um, it's hard to, to just look at a passage and say, oh, that happened or that didn't happen. I think there's memory everywhere. I think there's rewriting and theology everywhere. And it's just 
really, really hard to, to sort out, if you will, the first layer from the later layer. And I don't see any reason to think the later layer is always, always misleading. In fact, what I've ended up doing is I've said, I think the best place to start is just with the Gospels as a whole and just look at the repeating themes and motifs, the things that occur over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And if there's memory anywhere, then it's going to be there. So that's the place to start. And that may not sound terribly interesting, but within my context, it's a different way of approaching the material because, again, the way I was taught in the latter part of the 20th century was pull it apart look at each piece one by one, evaluate each piece and see what survives and then put those together. I'm actually saying, let's just look at the whole and see what generalizations we can make. And if the whole is misleading, if the gist is misleading, then the sources are so bad anyway that this whole uh, uh, undertaking can't can't be pulled off. So uh, some people think this makes me conservative. Some people think Think, think this makes me liberal, I think it just means I have common sense. <laughs> well, I remember, you know, going over those different uh, criteria. One of them was, uh, you know, the criteria of multiple attestation, you know. So if it yeah. was uh-huh. if it was said, uh, if we have it in multiple gospels, you know, that's more likely to go back to Jesus. But if we don't just have it in one gospel, then that's less likely to go back to Jesus, but then that kind of gets into your observation. But does it seem to, even if we only have it in one gospel, does it seem to capture something of the, of the character of Jesus? And then the other one uh, that comes to mind is the criterion of uh, embarrassment. And I always thought that was an interesting one, especially around the resurrection accounts where you have the women who are the ones that, that are the primary witnesses to the event, which wouldn't have been something you would have invented to bolster the credibility of your, of your story. Uh-huh. And the, and the men seem to come off very poorly in the, in the story, which is not something you would imagine that uh, there are certain elements to the story that just um, are kind of embarrassing. And then there's also that criterion of dissimilarity where you get some things uh, that come from Jesus that seem striking that don't seem they, they seem to be a striking, uh, I don't know if you want to say departure to common thinking of the time, but it, it just seems, this seems like something that, um, uh, yeah, would have been dissimilar to the general thinking of the time. Mm-hmm. So what what are those kinds of so, reflections? Bring okay, about? so that gets, that gets really complicated really fast. So let me just say something about uh, embarrassment. So I think that this criterion makes some sense insofar as I think it's hard to imagine Christians sitting around and inventing some of the things that are in the Gospels. So I think it unlikely that early Christians sat around and said, oh, let's make up a story in which people think Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton. I think that's a memory that is polemic that they remembered. The problem is there isn't that much there. So even if you think there's some stuff that's embarrassing and that that, that uh, they remembered it, you can't get very far with that. For me, the fact that there are some things there that uh, fit the so-called criterion of embarrassment uh, just give me some general confidence in the tradition that there is memory here. But I just don't think you can do that much with it, all right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I also have complaints about dissimilarity and multiple attestation, but um, even if you even if you agree with those criteria and think that they do some work, that doesn't, to my mind, say anything against my starting point, which is the safest starting point has got to be the stuff that keeps repeating. So, for example, you have a dozen places, a dozen stories. Uh, where Jesus is casting out demons, right? So even if you can't prove that a particular story goes back to Jesus, I think you can put them all together and make generalizations about them as a category. The most obvious being is that Jesus was an exorcist, right? Even if the pigs didn't go off the cliff, Jesus was an exorcist. And Jesus conceived of his ministry as a combat with Satan and conceived of himself as being victorious over Satan. Now, if you want to go beyond that and use criteria to authenticate this or that, well, you can do so. But uh, I just think there's a, a better way of doing doing business. And then my last point here is just that I became disillusioned with the criteria in part because I read widely and realized that people were using the same criteria on the same units to come to different conclusions. And this was actually disillusioning um, to see this. Well, in the in the book, you you make the uh, observation that you do seem to think that it is highly likely that Jesus anticipated how his own life would end tragically, and then how ultimately how it would ultimately become an eschatological victory. And you write about this saying, for along with Schweitzer and Jeremias and others. I believe that Jesus anticipated for himself a fate akin to that of John the Baptist and that he construed his imagined fate in terms of Jewish eschatology, whose primary pattern is tribulation followed by vindication. So could you say more about this theme of tribulation followed by vindication and how it ultimately relates to Jesus? So um, I am in the New Testament camp which thinks that Jewish eschatology or Jewish apocalyptic eschatology is fundamental for understanding Jesus. And if you read Jewish apocalypses and if you look at Jewish eschatology and even if you look at Jewish messianism down through the centuries, you'll see this repeating pattern. And the pattern is simply that God doesn't just win. God doesn't just stop the world. Things don't just get better at a point in time before the resurrection, before the parousia, before paradise, before the millennium, however you're conceiving of the future, there is a time of trial and tribulation. It's sort of like it's always darkest before the dawn, or it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And this is a pattern that repeats in uh, in the sources. Uh, it's a pattern you see in the book of Revelation, for example. It's the same pattern, I think, in the passion predictions. The Son of Man is going to be rejected and is going to be killed. And it's only then after that that you get the resurrection. So there are different ways of understanding Jewish eschatology and apocalyptic. Uh, there's Albert Schweitzer's more literal way. There is N.T. Wright's uh, more, metaphysic, uh, more uh, metaphorical or figurative way of understanding the language. But whichever camp you're in, this is a pattern that keeps repeating in the literature. Um, it's always getting bad, getting really, really bad before it gets really, really good. 
So I, I think Jesus lives with that pattern. Um, so that's what, that's what, that, that's what that is. Uh, I'm, yeah. reading, I'm finding it in the gospels. I'm finding it in the new Testament, but I'm also finding it uh, in the Jewish and Hebrew prophets. I'm finding it in the book of Daniel. I'm finding it in extra canonical pseudepigraphical literature. It's just the way people think about this. And by the way, I'm not a dispensationalist, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, but uh, if you look at popular dispensational thought, they have a notion of a, a great tribulation. That is, they have their seven-year period of, of uh, misery and um, terror before the end. And they are, I think, in their own way, preserving a pattern. Now, again, I'm not uh, a dispensationalist, but the basic pattern that they're working with when they think about the end is an ancient pattern. Um, so, I, I and I think Jesus himself is thinking in these terms. This helps him to construct and interpret uh, what is happening in his own experience. Well, you mentioned uh, origin and... Um... In his, in Origen's thinking, there would be an ultimate uh, pocketastasis or um, uh-huh. um, a return of of a restoration of of all things. And what's interesting to me is that Origen was thinking about these things in a context in which there was great persecution going on. His own father was martyred. Um, he himself wanted to wanted to follow his father that way, but his his mother frustrated his plans. The the story goes by hiding his clothes, so he couldn't. Uh-huh. So he couldn't. He was too modest to, uh, to 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 leave the home. But then, even later on, I mean, an origin went through a great deal of uh, uh, criticism and controversy and critique in his own life, and even at the end of his life, he was uh, tortured. And mm-hmm. the torture, the torture wasn't designed to kill him immediately, but it was designed to make him suffer mm-hmm. for the, you know, a suffer, a slow, depilitating death, which it did over a few years. And so what's interesting to me is you have these some of these early Christians that thought about um, a, a coming restoration of all things. And even the dire situations that they were in did not diminish their hope and expectation in, is that that there still could be something like it, like a restoration of all things on the horizon, which still enlivened their Christian faith? Yeah, but but see, I I think uh, I think the reason for that, or one of the reasons for that, is obvious because Christianity is centered around Jesus, and Jesus is tortured and crucified and is miserable and cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And all of the bad stuff comes before the good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Before the resurrection and ascension and seated at the right hand of God, he goes through torture, and that then becomes the pattern. And it gets reinforced by the stories about Paul's fate, because while we don't have the story of Paul's end in Acts, Christian tradition tells us, and uh, everybody thinks is probably correct here, that Paul also was a martyr. So you look back and you see these first two people, the hero of the book of Acts and the hero of the gospels, and they're martyrs. And um, that's going to affect how this religion develops and how people think about things. Yeah. I, I have to add, that is not a prosperity gospel. That's a martyrdom gospel. 
Well, um, in the book, I thought you made an interesting observation about an experience that you've had teaching seminarians, and I took note of this. You wrote, when I ask them to write on a passage in the Gospels, I often require that near the beginning they address the matter of origin. Does their selected text go back to a word or activity of Jesus, or did the early Christians rather invent it? How much can be attributed to the evangelist's hand? I have discovered over the years that the students' decisions about origin, whether well-considered or not, have little or nothing to do with their subsequent exegesis. Their theological, homiletic, and devotional meditations are not organically related to their verdicts about what really happened. And then you add, I am left wondering how they can or if they should be connected. I wonder if you could say more about this. So, yeah, let me start by saying that uh, from one point of view, I understand with what they're doing, and I guess I, I, I agree on some level. So if I look at the book of Genesis, let's say if I look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I am the sort of Christian who says, well, that's mythology, or those are parables, or those are stories. That is, I don't read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to learn about the age of the world. I don't read them uh, to find out about geology and the beginning of the space-time universe and so on. I read these as religious parables or myths. Somebody, some people prefer that word. And that means it doesn't really matter to me that there was a talking snake or that there was an apple. And, you know, I could ask what, what kind of fruit was this? Was it an apple? Was it something else? And I think what my students are often doing with the Gospels is they're reading them the way I read Genesis, as though it really doesn't matter. However, I've found in conversation that if I push them, some things do matter. So the, my students want to say that Jesus existed. That's really important to them. They want to say he was crucified. They want to say that belief in his resurrection wasn't caused by hallucinations. They want him to have a certain character. They want him to have stood for certain things, right? They want him to uh, have taught certain ideas. But when they're looking passage by passage, they're not thinking historically critically. And, you know, at the end of the day, I guess I'm sort of in the same camp. That is, if I'm going to get up and preach, I'm going to preach on the text but also, I think, theologically, and as a Christian, I do want Jesus to have been a few things, right? This rather than that. And I don't want to say the story is a myth and there was no Jesus and he wasn't crucified and he didn't stand for this and he had no character at all and so on. So my students do, uh, in some contexts, proceed as though it doesn't matter. But if you sit down and interview them one by one, it turns out some things do matter, the sorts of things that I just said. And strangely enough, this doesn't bother me because it sort of fits with my own approach that I outlined above to the, to the tradition. That is, I feel safest not by deciding that Jesus uttered this sentence or by this particular event happened. I prefer to live with the generalizations about the whole right? The things that are repeating. Mm -hmm. I think I have a good, a good idea of what his character was. I have a good idea of the sorts of things he did and the sorts of things he taught and the sorts of things that happened to him uh, at the end. And uh, in the last analysis, 
that's all I need. And I think maybe that's what, you know, my students uh, need. They don't really believe their faith. And I'm with them on this. They don't believe their faith hinges on whether there was a herd of pigs that ran off a cliff at a particular point in time. That's not what their faith is about. Still, their faith is uh, historical to the extent that it does demand certain things about Jesus be true. Well, uh, I, I'm thinking of or you're, what you were saying was reminding me of, um, well, I'm, I'm like when I was in seminary, it was I was I was grateful that there there had been you know exacting scholarship on Jesus and that and that I wasn't just in seminary I wasn't just in a Sunday school in which I was just being handed kind of wrote things but I was being kind of let in on what is the real historical academic discussion about how reliably we can get back to uh, Jesus uh, and and I enjoyed um, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that discussion, and there was a sense that there was that you can get a personality that is coming through. So, for uh-huh. instance, you can. One of the things that that I got that comes through uh, from Jesus is that he did believe that there was um, there was a judgment that there was a something that was mm-hmm. even seemed to be on the horizon, a kind of a kind of cataclysm, and he did he did talk about. Um, Gehenna, and he used that in in figurative ways, and he talked about Hades, and he he used the language, and he used the language of the day, and um, and he did seem to think that there was something on the horizon that was historical, that was some kind of judgment, and he warned his followers that um, when, for instance, when the Roman armies came, don't go into Jerusalem thinking that's going to be a place of safe harbor, head for the you know go to the hills instead so there was the, to me there is this sense that that Jesus did anticipate judgment and eschatological type judgment but that it's an oversimplification then to say oh Jesus was talking about a hell of eternal conscious torment and uh, some kind mm-hmm. of heaven in in kind of I don't know modern in kind of modern ideas so just if you could talk about that a little bit. So, so I think that's probably the the most valuable upshot of this so-called quest. So one part of the quest is, in fact, to try and figure out uh, how historical the Gospels are or how much memory they have. But another part of the quest is to say, okay, Jesus was a first century Jew, and what he said must have been intelligible to first century Jews. So if we're going to try to get this figure We're not just going to read back, let's say, fourth century uh, Christian creedal categories onto the material. We're actually going to try to figure out what a first century Jew might have intended or meant by by this or that. And so we're not going to take Augustine's or Calvin's view of hell and read it back into the first century. We're going to actually try to think what people in the first century might have thought about judgment and Gehenna and so on. So I think that's the most important uh, upshot of this uh, quest. And that means in the last analysis that it functions as a sort of commentary on the gospels. That is, what did Gehenna mean in the first century? Where did Jesus get this concept? How did it evolve? Those are the things that are really interesting and important, and we can answer them to some extent. 
And it's not how people used to read the Gospels. They used to read them primarily through uh, the theological tradition. And I do that also. But I also want to read as an historian, and I want to figure out what things meant in, in the first century. And by the way, that's just you know, that, that's not just theological. If I read Plato, I want to understand what Plato thought, right? That's, that's yeah. it. And if I read uh, Augustine, I want to know what Augustine thought, uh, not just how, you know, people later on used him. So this is just the sort of respect that is due to authors and to sources. Uh, you want to understand them on their own terms before you do other things with them. Of course, you're going to do other things more things with them. But I think it's just human respect to find out what did Matthew mean, right? And what did Jesus mean? What did Paul mean? Uh, it's just, again, it's just common sense. And another thing kind of about the historic, the study of the historic context of Christ <clears throat> that really helped me is that when I went to seminary, I learned, and this, you know, this sounds so fundamental, this will sound very fundamental to you, but I learned that there was something called apocalyptic, that it uh -huh. was a that it was a genre that it was a it was a way of communicating through um, sort of fantastical imagery and pictures um, that uh, was was a way that people kind of understood how to talk about certain things eschatologically in the ancient world and there's there was a there's a lot of Jewish apocalyptic literature around the time immediately preceding Jesus. And there was a good deal of Christian apocalyptic literature after, not, with not just the book of Revelation, but other apocalypses. So just knowing that this kind of, this kind of genre or way of, ex, of religious expression existed in that world helped me to uh, just get a handle on that when I came across these types of expressions in the New Testament, then I said, mm -hmm. oh, well, I kind of had a background or a framework that I could, I could look to to help make some sense out of these things. Yes, so that's, in my view, that's one of the problems with a lot of popular interpretation of the book of Revelation, because there are other texts, Jewish texts, such as Second Baruch or Fourth, Fourth Ezra, that are full of fantastic beasts and have numerology and have these uh, terrible plagues that are falling from heaven and so on. And trying to understand Revelation without knowing the other texts that are like it is, I think, impossible. Uh, you know, when you read a letter of Paul, you know what a letter is, so it sort of helps you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or if you read Mark, you sort of have an idea what a history or a biography is, so that orients you. When right. you read Revelation, you don't know what an apocalypse is because you haven't read any others. But if you read three or four others, you're going to say, oh, this belongs to a type of literature. And in order to understand it, I'm going to have to understand other uh, entries into uh, the genre. So, yeah, yeah you're, abs you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I did a, I did a paper in seminary on the, the, you know, the apocalyptic uh, sayings of Jesus that are reported in the different gospels. Boy, that was a complex paper. I kind of <laughs> wished I hadn't, I kind of wished I hadn't written that one because um, the different gospels have some different twists on the way the apocalyptic right. phrases are used. And there's a big debate about all of that. But at least what it helped me to understand is that I was in a world that was a lot of the, 
a lot of exactly how it worked may, may be lost historically, but at least I realized I was in a world of apocalyptic images and tropes. And so at least it helped me to sort of know like what zone I was in when I'm looking yeah. at these types of things. Yeah. So, so maybe this is just me, but I actually think it's healthy for human beings to get out of our own time and place and our own world and think imaginatively about other times and places. And that's one of the reasons I, I like the Bible in the church when people study it seriously, because it takes people out of their own presuppositions and everything they take for granted, because it is a very different world. Yeah, that's one of the things that I appreciate about getting to visit with the scholars of the Second Temple Juda Judaism is that they kind of they can kind of evoke that world in not just New Testament texts, but in in other contemporary Jewish texts and in yeah. in other texts around that that time to sort of give just a kind of a better sense of things. Okay, let's. I, there's a uh, in the book you relate the following quote from Albert Schweitzer, and he's kind of attributed with the, the getting the quest for the historical Jesus uh, started. And so uh, Schweitzer wrote. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old, by the lakeside. He came to those men who did not know who he was. He says the same words, follow me, and sets us to those tasks which he must fulfill in our time. He commands, and to those who hearken to him, whether wise or unwise, he will reveal himself in the peace, the labors, the conflicts, and the suffering that they may experience in his fellowship, and as an ineffable mystery they will learn, and as an ineffable mystery, they will learn who he is. And uh, so, why did you put that quote in your book? And what you find <laughs> well, I put that in there. Be, I put that in there because I love that quotation, and I think about it often. And maybe I don't have the right interpretation, but I can tell you what my interpretation of this is. So, Schweitzer actually became a medical missionary and went off to Africa. He left the German academy. Uh, he could have been uh, a bigwig in the German Academy, but he left. And in his own mind, he thought that he was following Jesus and that he was living the gospel. And I think that Schweitzer learned and experienced things as a medical missionary that he could never have experienced in the academy. And you can draw all sorts of analogies to this, but I think that if you visit people, let's say in a, a, in a retirement home or an old folks home or whatever you want to call it, you learn things about life that you simply can't learn anywhere else and you can't learn them from books. And if you do hospital visitation, you will learn things about human beings and life that you can't learn anywhere else. That's it. You just, you have to do certain things in order to understand them. And I think what Schweitzer is saying is that you simply don't understand the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the moral vision of Jesus, the aspirations of Jesus, unless you try to live into the words. So you don't understand love your enemy unless you actually try loving your enemy at some mm -hmm. point. And you, you don't understand the Good Samaritan unless you go out of your way to help somebody who isn't like you. So I think that's what he's getting at here. Uh, words without deeds are, are dead, and uh, interpretation without words is just empty. And to understand then what's going on in the Gospels, 
you can't just be an historian. You have to try to live into these words. And I think he's absolutely correct. You, you can respond to these, interpret them, understand them on one level. But there are things that require living in order to gain another uh, level of, uh, of understanding. So well, that's, that's what I think. Well, one of the that made me think of is uh, kind of an experience in my own life. My my father went through the um, Vietnam War, and he came out of that experience. And, and he whatever sort of spirituality he had going into that was kind of dashed um, in that in that experience. And um, whenever I guess I was getting uh, coming into my own adult identity. Um, I, and I was headed, I was thinking more, I'd read C.S. Lewis, and I was thinking more about the Christianity. And he was concerned that I was maybe wasting my life by following after a myth that uh-huh. couldn't possibly be true. And that the, you know, he said that the um, the hard truth about the world is that the world retains its order uh, when, when you kill the bad guys. And somebody has to kill the bad guys. Uh, for this world that you have exists and has order because somebody's got to kill the bad guys. And that was my job. And I've, I've been in war and I've killed a lot of people. And I know that when you kill people, they don't come back to life. So um, I just hope that you won't kind of, I think he was trying to say, I hope you won't kind of go through life chasing this fairy tale that dead people come back and that, (laughs) And that, you know, love is this is this powerful thing, you know, that we don't need violence, you know, and, and, and war. And I guess the thing that attracted me about Jesus was he had this counter proposal. He had this counter kingdom, which he said was now present. And that in this now present kingdom, we could live lives of nonviolence and peace and not holding grudges um, uh, forgiving uh, those who wronged us, uh, that there was there was a counter kingdom, that there was a different that there was a different way, and that maybe love was the most powerful thing, and that maybe in the end, life does win out over over death, and and I've gone on that journey in my life, and I just feel uh, you in that book, encountering mystery. You know, you go on that journey, and as you're on the journey, you have all of these experiences that have, to me, reinforced the the reality that this that something real is going on. Something real was going on with Jesus, with this kingdom of God that He talked about, with this hope of a life after death. That that I don't know. That all kind of works together, and just made me think about that that Schweitzer that Schweitzer quote, quote that there is something that you discover just in the living of it. That you can't mm-hmm. get in just, um, I don't just an academic exercise. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I'm also with you uh, with regard to this uh, counter kingdom. But you know, Schweitzer was a real radical with regard to the with regard to this. So uh, I mean, he actually ends up becoming uh, like a like a Jane, um, like uh, you know the Indian group that doesn't even want to harm insects. It's really interesting to read his diary. And he worries about things like killing mosquitoes. He really does. Uh, 
and uh, vegetarianism and, and so on. Anyway, he, uh, he would be with you here. I mean, he's really into this counter kingdom and he, uh, he actually carries it beyond the, the human sphere to, to nature and to other creatures. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that counter kingdom, because okay. one, of the, one of the things that I learned in seminary that I found the most interesting was this idea of realized eschatology. And that the kingdom, when Jesus talked about the kingdom being at hand, it meant that it was already, it was not just on the horizon, but it was already here. And I learned that the kingdom of God is God's in the Greek basileia, God's reigning authority and power from which we can neither subtract nor add, but to which we can submit and receive in the here and now. And then, so for me, questions about when and how God's kingdom will finally be fully manifest lay behind this impenetrable wall of eschatological and symbolic language that was deeply connected to Jesus' sense of the imminent fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. Um, but I guess so I have this sense that um, that there is this, for me, I guess what I ended up holding on to was I really liked the realized eschatology that the kingdom is now and that I could I could experience it now and live in it now. And as far as how it would unfold in the end times or I just trusted that somehow its pattern and unfolding would be in line with the ultimate character of Christ, but that I didn't need to get too worried about when or how all of those events would exactly work out. So. I don't know. How, how do you think about all those things? Well, so first of all, I think if you know anything about Christian history, you know that people have always hoped that the end was near and they've always, uh, you know, the world has gone on anyway. And so at some point you you get the lesson that we, we can't predict this and we, we don't know when. But beyond that, if you look, let's say, at, at the Gospels or the New Testament, there is actually very little there about the afterlife or even the world to come. That is, uh, Jesus uses parables, and those are stories. They're not literal descriptions of, of things. He never stops and says, oh, you want to know about hell? Here's your little literal description of it. He doesn't do that. He uses metaphors, and he'll speak of a wedding, for example, or he'll speak of a banquet. And so what that means, uh, among other things, is that He's not trying to give you sort of concrete information. I actually think there's a parallel here with the book of Genesis. So I'm not reading the book of Genesis now in order to find out, uh, to discover concrete history, right? Okay. I'm not using it to find out geology. And I'm not actually using the New Testament to map the future. Is there going to be a millennium? How long is it going to last? What's going to happen right before the millennium? What's going to happen after the millennium and things like that? Uh, I think Jesus is too parabolic and metaphorical. I think he's a little bit like Plato here. Uh, I think what he's saying often is, well, it's going to be that or something like it, right? That or something like it. And my own interpretation of this language uh, is twofold. One, as you said earlier, there is a judgment. I think human beings are responsible and we will be held uh, responsible by the divinity. And the other thing is that God will win in the end. And so I'm happy with these big, large themes, but I can't tell you the details of, of, of anything. 
I can't tell you what a resurrected body is. Uh, I, I can't move from 1 Corinthians 15 to mapping the future or from Mark 13 to mapping the future. But uh, I, I see very little to work with there. Again, mm-hmm. uh, my tendency when it comes to eschatological language is to interpret almost everything as a parable or as a story. That is, the the end is like the beginning. And that includes both of them are for us parables, right? Uh if we want to know about the literal future, I suppose we can read what scientists have to say about the big crunch or, or, or whatever. I have no idea what's coming, you know, literally down the road. But I think theologically you have to say that God wins. And I think you have to say human beings uh, are responsible for, for their actions. Those are at least two things that, that yeah. I find in this language. When I think about the, the, the God winning, that uh, that's... Uh, that finally, that that the the loving and redemptive purposes of God uh, went out in each not 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 only for the the whole arc of human history, but in the lives of each individual person. And and when I think about the future now, instead of thinking about an unending uh, progression of time forward, I think of like when Origen in the early church fathers thought of time as a series of ages or aeons. And that when the aeons came to an end, God would be all in all, and nobody would be in an aeon anymore, for we would all have all transcended the aeons, and we would be united with God. Well, I hope you're right. I hope Orchid was right. But I, 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 I try to be modest here. Uh, when, I, when I say God wins, uh, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think theologically that is what I, what I have to say. Also, at least for me, um, it means Teresa of Avila. It means all, all manner of thing must be well. Um, but how that is. Julian, now Julian of Norwich. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, all yeah. shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. What did I say? What did I say? Did I say Teresa? Somebody? I think you said Teresa oh, of Avila. Oh, I'm reading a book on Teresa of Avila right now. So <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, Julian. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I, I am in her camp. But again, I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't claim to 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 know uh, the future concretely. Um, I do the same thing with the future that I do with with Genesis. I mean, I look at Genesis and I say, this tells us, among other things, that human beings do stupid things. It tells us that human beings are responsible. It tells us that human beings create messes. Uh, it tells us that we're created in the image of God. There are all sorts of lessons, theological lessons here, but for me, they are separated from uh, historical, critical reconstruction of the, the, the real past. And it's the same thing with the future. Um, now, you make an interesting observation about how Jesus, although speaking quite a bit about the kingdom of God, primarily referred to God as more of an incredibly loving heavenly father rather than a remote and terrifying king. About this you write, God is for Jesus above all father, which is both a name and a metaphor. This is striking. The chief theme of the chief theme in the tradition is the kingdom of God. We might expect then that its primary image of the divinity would be that of a king, especially as the image of God seated on a throne recurs so often in the Hebrew Bible and Judaism. References to God as king, however, appear only occasionally in the sources for Jesus, who far more frequently speaks of God as father. 
So I thought that was interesting. I wonder if you could expand on that. Well, so so there are two things to, to comment on here. One is from the point of view of an historian. And I think as an historian, I, I hold that Jesus thought he was Messiah, right? And within Judaism, that meant king. So I actually think Jesus, when he thinks of the kingdom, uh, thinks that he will be king. That's why James and John can ask to sit at his right and left. So God is only occasionally king because Jesus is the proxy for, for kingship. But beyond that, I would say that, of course, Jesus gets the notion that God is loving from his Jewish tradition. This is in the, the you know, the Hebrew uh, Bible. Even in the book of Jonah, God even cares for the cattle. You know, you remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So God is a caring and, and, and loving God. So he, he's got that from his tradition. There are other things that we can speculate and that I enjoy speculating about. So one is this, Joseph uh, is not in the Gospels, that is, uh, during the public ministry. And one guess is that Joseph actually died when Jesus was young. And uh, one possibility is that Joseph died early enough that Jesus could idealize him and never be uh, disillusioned. So uh, one of the regular psychological patterns is you idealize one of your parents and then you get older and you find out they're not perfect, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to approach Jesus psychologically, one possibility is that he idealized his father and his father died before he was ever disillusioned with him. Uh, But I think the more interesting possibility here is that Jesus's emphasis here is not just from the tradition, and maybe it's not just psychologically explained. I think there have to be religious experiences behind this. That is, the fundamental conviction that God is a loving Father has to be in line with his own religious experiences. Now, those are behind a curtain. The gospel doesn't. The gospels don't give those to us. But Jesus was not just a talking head. And I don't think he was just speaking theoretically. And given what I know about mystical experiences, given what I know about religious experience, given what I know about this very common experience of running into transcendent love, I am pretty sure, or at least I would bet, that this also must be part of Jesus's experience. Um, you know, even apart from questions about the beatific vision and all, all the, you know, incarnation and all this stuff, just on um, the basic human level, I think this must be part of his experience and that he speaks out of it. I hope he speaks out of it. I hope he's not just being theoretical. Uh, I hope so. Well, uh, when you talked about Jesus' emphasis as father, that reminded me of uh, uh, William Barclay in his spiritual autobiography gives four reasons why he came to uh, confidently expect a universal restoration. And his last reason, I just want to read this to you so you get your reaction to it. His, he wrote fourth, this is his fourth reason he gave, fourth, I believe implicitly in the ultimate and complete triumph of God, the time when all things will be subject to him and when God will be everything to everyone. First Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, which Origen would have liked that reference. Yes. <laughs> then he goes on to say, for me, this has certain consequences. If one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. 
Further, there is only one way in which we can think of the triumph of God. If God was no more than a king or judge, then it would be possible to speak of his triumph if his enemies were agonizing in hell or were totally and completely obliterated and wiped out. But God is not only king and judge, God is father. He is indeed father more than anything else. No father could be happy while there were members of his family forever in agony. No father would count it a triumph to obliterate the disobedient members of his family. The only triumph a father can know is to have all his family back home. The only victory love can enjoy is the day when its offer of love is answered by the return of love. The only possible final triumph is a universe loved by and in love with God. So what are Barclay's comments there uh, evoking you? Yeah, well, first of all, I simply uh, resonate with them. And I very much like the sentence, God is father more than anything else. That That's what uh, leaped out uh, for me. But the other thing, I don't know if he's intentionally alluding to this, but I, I was just thinking of the parable of the prodigal son where the father, you know, waits and the son eventually comes back. And then there is, in fact, a family reunion, right? Uh, <clears throat> that a family unit that has been broken and then is restored. So I don't know if he was thinking about that in the background, but I, I don't see how to argue with something like that. I think what you have to do if you take a different point of view is to say God is not above everything love. You have to say something like God is equally judgment or, you know, 50-50 love and judgment and that sort of thing. And I, I just don't, un I don't understand that myself. Well, uh, another image that I have liked, I've, I've liked the idea that of God is love, and I've liked the idea of God is Father, and I've also been really drawn to the image of uh, you know, First John that God is light, in whom there is no mm -hmm. darkness at all. And so it's interesting to me the ways that light then um, comes into the Jesus um, story, and so. In your book, you give an interesting analysis of the transfiguration of Jesus, and you write, The judgment that the transfiguration is nothing but mythology may turn out to be premature, for the inference implicitly assumes that people are never transfigured into light, or at least that there are no credible accounts of such, whereas if one patiently investigates without prejudice, one discovers a surprisingly large body of first-hand testimony reporting just this. One witness is Gregory of Nyssa the famous 4th century Cappadocian father, and also he was in the universalist tradition. That's my <laughs> input there. In his eulogy of his brother, Basil, he wrote this, quote, At night, while he was at prayer in the house, there came a light illuminating Basil. A certain immaterial light by divine power lit up the house, and it was without a material source. Some might feel free to dismiss these words as ancient uh, credulity, or maybe as a rhetorical flight of fancy. I hesitate, however. Not only was Gregory an extraordinary intelligent man, but I have over the years formed an opinion of his character, and it is hard for me to discount his apparently earnest witness. It is easier for me to believe that he saw a light he could not explain, whatever its origin may have been. And so I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more about that. It also kind of reminded me of your writing on mystical experiences that people have and light that is sometimes yeah. involved in those experiences. So I wonder if you could just talk more about that. So, well, this is the transfiguration. So you could go on again and again and again. So first of all, let me just make an historical point. And 
this is a point that uh, I've made now a couple of times in publication and I'm making it with my students. Um, but I think it's obvious that people often see uh, holy individuals uh, surrounded by a light. And in the book that you're quoting from, I give one example of a friend of mine who's a Sufi who claims to have seen his Sufi master glow. I also, after writing that book, got an account from one of my children who, with three other people, got an audience in 2019 with a uh, Tibetan Buddhist Karmapa and... um, the short of it is that all four of these people claimed that this man was glowing. Now, I've thought about this a lot since then, because how many people do I know? I don't know that many people. And I have two people who claim that they saw somebody glowing. <laughs> I know enough about Roman Catholic canonization uh, records to know that Roman Catholic saints are glowing all over the place. And I know that a lot of these accounts are firsthand. Uh, I know that they're not confined. This is part of a, this is an interesting theological issue. They're not confined to Christian saints or Christian holy people. They also occur elsewhere. So if I'm trying to be an historian, one of the things I can say is I, I simply reject the notion that all firsthand accounts of people glowing are uh, mythology or folklore or secondhand. That is not the case. Uh, I know from two people I know that they were there when they at least thought somebody glowed. I've I've looked into this enough to think that sometimes people glow for an inexplicable reason, all right? So that's that's one thing. But I also like, uh, you know, leaving the historical uh, issue, I I like what uh, the Eastern mystical tradition does with the transfiguration. So we usually talk as though Jesus was transfigured, But in the East, the notion is that what happened was that the disciples were changed and the scales fell from their eyes and they saw what was always there, right? That's interesting. So that that Jesus is always transfigured. And this actually stands for um, uh, something that's part of the Hesychus mystical or Byzantine mystical tradition. There are There are holy people, there are saints, there are mystics who report seeing the um, light of Christ that bathes the entirety of the creation. And they'll identify this mystical light with the light of the transfiguration. And I have no doubt myself that they're talking about actual experiences, mystical raptures in which they are encountering um, God as, as light. So uh, the mystical side of me thinks that there is this divine light that permeates the world, and sometimes uh, it shows up, manifests itself to our eyes. Sometimes it manifests itself to uh, mystics or, or holy people uh, who are in a certain mental state. And sometimes it just manifests itself uh, out of the blue for reasons that I totally don't understand at all, where, where people will... Uh, see a, a scene transfigured uh, by some unearthly light. So I, I, I kind of like to play with these ideas and put them together. But like you, I take this light stuff uh, 
very seriously. Although having said that, I also think it's important to remember that the transfiguration, which occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not the conclusion of the gospel. The conclusion is actually Golgotha. So Jesus goes up on, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration and glows and everything's great and Elijah shows up and God speaks and uh, so on. But there's a counter in the, um, the the story of the crucifixion. I actually think that that this is intentional on the part of at least Matthew and, and Mark. That is, they are presenting these scenes as very parallel. In both, Jesus is raised. In both, he has uh, people on either side of him. Uh, in one scene, it's all light. In one scene, it's all darkness. In one scene, he's surrounded by two thieves. In the other, these two great saints of old. Uh, in one, God shows up and speaks. In the other, God is absent. In one, Elijah shows up. In the other, Elijah does not show up. You know, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if he shows up. No, he doesn't. Uh, then, then there are observers who are, are afraid. They see this and, uh, and are afraid. Um, so I think they're actually deliberate panels, contrasting panels. And what's interesting to me is that I like the transfiguration and would like to be in that scene. I don't want to be in uh, the scene of crucifixion, but the gospel writers make the darkness the uh, culminating point of the narrative. Somehow salvation is found not in the light, but in the darkness, not in the, the good experience, but the bad experience. There's something really profound here with the contrast between these two scenes uh, in which Jesus is, is elevated and one it goes all light and the other it goes uh, in, into all darkness. So th that's worth, worth keeping in mind here because the mystical tradition not only knows about this, this light, it also knows about the mystical darkness and finding mm -hmm. God in, in the absence of, of, of all light. Well, that kind of reminds me also light and fire kind of can sort of go together. And, and I remember when I was uh, looking into the judgment language in the New Testament, I thought it was interesting that at one time you have Jesus talking about the wicked, they're cast into the blazing furnace that produces weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in another place, they're cast into outer darkness, which produces, <laughs> you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if I want to be really literalistic about this, I say, wait a second, how can that, how can that work out, you know? But yeah. I think this go, this goes back to these these ideas that that if you think of God as a as a fire as a as a, some kind of God as fire or light, or then you think of the the, the ironically illumination of darkness that that, that darkness uh, makes some things actually come to light in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, oh gosh, that gets into lots of uh, of subjects, but. Um... Well, I'll, ju I'll just I'll just let that go. But um, yeah, a lot to be said there. Uh, Aquinas, by the way, said, how can you have darkness and fire at the same time? He said, well, the fire produces a lot of smoke. So he was, <laughs> he was trying to be literal, but I, I like your approach more. I don't think that Jesus is trying to be literally consistent here. Okay, well, one of the greatest theological questions we face is how to square an immensely loving Heavenly Father with the suffering of this world and the threat of a final judgment, which most Christians today associate with the hell of eternal separation, whose occupants either come to a final annihilation or go on suffering forever. 
about this, you offer the following general generalization at the end of your book. You write, one last thought. Although Jesus may be the coincidence of opposites, he does not reconcile or unify them. For him, death and life are not death and life are not like summer and winter, the one always coming after the other in an eternal return without victor. He may believe in the devil, but he believes far more in God. Jesus' dualism is relative, not absolute. There can be no tie, for evil is bound to lose. The divine love and goodness must triumph over all else. So the opposites are not complementary, but antagonistic, not equal, but sequential. In the end, the good undoes the bad. And in this, as in so much else, Jesus' life instantiates this teaching. For the resurrection does not balance crucifixion in the grave. It defeats them. So I was wondering if you could expand on the on all of these ideas. <laughs> well, let me let me try a couple of things here. So, so here's the first one. In um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus very solemnly says that if you deny him before others, he will deny you before the Father in heaven. Right? Very serious stuff here. If you deny me, I will deny you. And there's no qualification. No qualification whatsoever. But this actually happens in right, Matthew, Mark, Peter. and Luke. <laughs> you get a man who denies him publicly. And what's so interesting is that's not the end of his story. And you're not told that he was denied by, uh, you know, he will be denied uh, in front of the Father by the Son of Man. What happens is that the risen Christ appears to him, Right. And what this must mean, it seems to me, is it must mean that resurrection, whatever else it is, means forgiveness, right? Because Peter is forgiven. And uh, how could he not, when reflecting on the meaning of this event, think, you know, he showed up and he didn't condemn me. That's, he actually said, he, you know, that's what he's going to do. But I, I'm forgiven. So I think that resurrection in the Gospels, in light of that passage in Matthew 10 and Mark, Mark 8, I think it, it, resurrection means forgiveness. That's part of, of what it is. That's part of what the risen Jesus hmm. uh, does. And I, I really like the fact that Jesus doesn't, when he, when he utters this threat, he doesn't say, oh, by the way, uh, here are the, here's the way out, or, you know, I may not really mean this. He doesn't do that. He, he's, he's as serious as he can be. And yet somehow it's, uh, it's, it's undone. So that, that's one thing. For me, resurrection means uh, forgiveness. Here's, here's the second thing. And here I'm putting together a bunch of texts, but let's just start with Matthew 24 through 28. So this is Jesus's eschatological discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, and then 26, 27, 28, the passion narrative. One of the really strange and fascinating facts about Matthew is that there are obvious correlations between what Jesus prophesies about the end of the world and what happens to him in the passion narrative. So Jesus says that at the end, the saints will be handed over. He is then handed over. He says at the end, 
there will be great darkness. And then, in fact, the sun goes out uh, when, when he's on the cross. He says there will be earthquakes at the end. Well, there's an earthquake when he's hanging from the cross. He says people will be betrayed by those closest to him. He says the temple will be destroyed, and it's symbolically destroyed you know, when the, the temple veil is red, he says that they will stand before governors at the end. He says they will flee in, the, in, in that day. So there's a whole list of obvious correlations that make you think Jesus is describing the end, but somehow he's also describing what happens to him, you know, just uh, a couple of chapters uh, later. And in fact, in Matthew, uh, we even get the resurrection of the dead, while Jesus is on the cross, you remember that there's an earthquake and the graves open and the saints come out. I mean, how weird is that? We, got, we got, have so this is end time stuff. So somehow the passion is is the end time, and the way I like to think about it is to say that the end of Jesus is the end of the world in miniature, right? Uh, Jesus's end is the end of the world in miniature, and then I ask myself, who is the character of the guy on the cross? What is the character of the guy on the cross? He is not the condemning judge. This is the guy who actually says, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is one of the last things he does. And he forgives uh, the thief, whatever his sins were, and says, you know, you'll be with me today in paradise. So the guy who is crucified, the guy who is there uh, foreshadowing uh, the end of the world, again, this is the end of the world in miniature, this guy says, I, I forgive them. So I think that's the character of the guy on the last day. I don't think there's this, well, I, I acted this way back then, but now I'm going to change my character and be totally different. I was forgiving and loving then, but wow, I'm going to change and, and be morph into some other sort of being. So I think that the guy who is at the center of the end in the passion narrative is the same guy. <clears throat> or the same deity that is there at, at the end. And again, as far as I can tell, that's Julian of Norwich, right? Yes. That's, that's forgiveness while you're being tortured. And uh, if you can forgive the people who are torturing you and you can forgive Peter after denying you, what are you not going to forgive? Well, um, you know, one of the things that I think when, you know, on um, – when you get to the Easter time and you're thinking about the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection, uh, <clears throat> I used to say that, that one of the things that, uh, that the, you know, that the resurrection is this amazing event to think about. But one of the things that is so stupendously amazing to me is that right at the point of death, when Jesus is being crucified, instead of saying, you know, Roman soldiers and you, you Pharisees or Sadducees that are watching all this, well, you're going to rue the day that you crucified me because uh, I'm going to be raised from the dead and I'm going to come back and I'm going to make you wish that you'd never, uh, you'd never seen me because what I'm going to do to you is 10 times mm -hmm. uh, worse than you ever, uh, you ever did to me. And that if he had said, if he had acted that way and he had screamed, you know, curses upon these people that, um, what, you know, how different, how, even if Jesus had risen from the dead, how different the whole, 
you know, the whole story would have been. And it was exactly Jesus, what Jesus was saying and how he acted on the cross that turned out to be the gospel to the uh, Roman centurion that was standing there, at least in one of the gospels. And he's surely this man is the son mm-hmm. of God. You know, I've never seen anybody do anything like that. And so that Jesus, I've, I've heard it said, well, it's suffering, uh, produces character, but suffering also <laughs> reveals, suffering yeah. also reveals character. And to me, that, that character that is revealed in Jesus on the cross takes me back to different different stories in the gospel, like where he's uh, he's asked, why are you sitting at tables with sinners, you know, and tax collector? And so he tells the story, he tells the three parables in Luke in the 15th chapter of the lost uh-huh. sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And so, he, you know, how Jesus was forever sort of casting out, he was casting out the insiders and including the outsiders. And he was saying things like, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And it was sort of an upside down sort of way of looking at things. And so he could, he could, he could be very severe in his judgment, but then his mercy uh, could be surprising and, and overwhelming. And so those conflicts and tensions seem to run through not just his life, but his death and the way he handled his, his uh, crucifixion. And so that to me kind of all works together and it, it gives me a sense of the quality of the character of this person. So um, I don't know exactly what the historical or psychological reasons are for this, but if you ask people about Jesus's teaching, what, what did he teach? One of the things that they almost inevitably think about very quickly is turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, right? Love your enemy. And uh, that is somehow displayed in the character of the guy who gets crucified, right? I mean, he's turning the other cheek and uh, he's not resisting uh, an evildoer and his clothes are taken away. I, I think this is all really profound. And the way you put it reminds me of the opposite in Tertullian. So Tertullian will say, you know, right yeah. now, you know, uh, you've got us in the arena and you're killing us, but just wait, we're going to, we're going to be in the stands cheering uh, the beasts on when they rip you to shreds in the world to come. And you're right. There's nothing like that there. Um, so again, that's very profound. And, you know, my hope is that's, that's what it's all about ultimately. Right. I hope, or I hope Tertullian's wrong. Well, um, uh, one of the books when I was in seminary, the um, when I was in seminary from uh, eighty three to eighty seven at Bright Divinity School, then I went back in ninety five and ninety six and did a doctor of ministry. But um, I remember that the uh, Jesus seminar and all of that was really in full swing um, mm-hmm. when I was there. And, and uh, at the time, I read um, a book called The Real Jesus by Luke Timothy Johnson, and the mm-hmm. subtitle is the misguided quest for the historical Jesus and the truth of the traditional gospels. And I don't know, Luke Timothy Johnson may go a little further than you go. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how to compare, how to compare the two of you, but at, toward the end of the book, there's just a couple of paragraphs that he writes. And I want to read this and get your response to it. Okay. He says, uh, when the witness of the new Testament is taken as a whole, a deep consistency can be detected beneath its surface diversity. The real Jesus is, first of all, the powerful resurrected Lord whose transforming spirit is active in the community. But following Jesus is not a matter of the sort of power that dominates others, 
nor of already ruling in the kingdom of God. It is instead a matter of transformation according to the pattern of the Messiah. The real Jesus is therefore also the one who, through the Spirit, replicates in the lives of believers faithful obedience to God and loving service to others. Everywhere in these writings, the image of Jesus involves the tension-filled paradox of death and resurrection, suffering and glory. Within the New Testament, no other pattern joins the story of Jesus than that of his followers. Discipleship does not consist in a countercultural critique of society. Discipleship does not consist in working overwhelming miracles. These elements of the Jesus tradition are not made normative in the way that the pattern of obedient suffering and loving service is. In short, abandoning the frame of meaning, meaning given by the story of Jesus by the four canonical gospels is to abandon the frame of meaning given to the story of Jesus and of Christian discipleship by the rest of the New Testament as well. So I, I agree with much of that. Uh, I, um, I have spent a lot more time doing uh, reconstruction of the so-called historical Jesus than, than Johnson has. Uh, but at the end, uh, you have to say that what matters ultimately is how people live these texts. And he's right about the pattern there. And he's certainly right about the early Christians. Jesus, for them, wasn't uh, the historical figure of the past. He was uh, a a divine presence. And so I I don't know how you disagree with that. It's it's interesting. So I was also, uh, I guess, a... um, an opponent, if you will, of, of the Jesus Seminar. And I had my debates with Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan and so on. Um, I think what Johnson was arguing more, uh, less than, well, okay, how, I'll put it this way. My argument was that the Jesus Seminar people were not being good historians, all right? and that I could criticize them on purely historical grounds. Johnson was doing something much more theological than I was back then, but I'm not unsympathetic to to what he was doing. And I would hope he's not completely unsympathetic to the sort of thing uh, I have done. I have participated uh, uh, in in this quest, and I still do so. I still have a book. uh, I'm finishing a book this year on the historical Jesus, right? And it does have some um, theological suggestions here and there. But I'm still, despite everything, uh, also very interested in Jesus of Nazareth as a first century historical figure and not just interested in him theologically or um, ecclesiologically. I, I also am an historian. It's just one of the facets of my personality. So I don't know how to stop being that. Let me ask you one. Oh, I'll just get one more question for you because okay. uh, my uh, my church that I ministered in um, until I retired from pastoral ministry was uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and so sort of embedded in our name there is Disciples of Christ. And so, uh, in my church experience, when we would ask ourselves, "What are we doing?" we would say, "Well." Well, we're believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and we're accepting Him as our Lord and Savior, and we're 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 trying the best that we can to follow Him and in in His you know in His way. And what that does is it ends up humbling all of us, because we you know when you try to do that, you all realize that you're that you're falling short. So, as a, 
one of the things, one of the ways that I concluded my ministry was uh, was by preaching in an extended way through the Sermon on the Mount. I did, um, I did. It took me a year and a half, and I did a sermon on every verse in the Sermon <laughs> on the Mount. And so, when, what we did was we just every Sunday for a year and a half, we just said, "Okay, we're here. We're endeavoring to be disciples of Jesus." And so let's look at something he said in the Sermon on the Mount, and let's just reflect on this uh, together. Not that we'll all come away with the same idea about it, but that we should at least attend to this and, and take this, the Sermon on the Mount, seriously as what it means to follow Jesus. So, so I, I went all the way through the, the Sermon on the Mount, and then you get to the very end of, you know, of, the, of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the, 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 you know, about the, the person that uh, is, is the— is the person that builds his house on the rock is the person that not only hears these words, but hears these words and puts them into practice. You get the idea that he's wanting his disciples, you know, to, to actually try to, you know, live this out, that that was a serious, he was serious about this, that he wanted disciples, people who were going to live out Mm -hmm. this kind of life as the kingdom of God present on earth and a manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. Then you get to the, the very end of Matthew and after the crucifixion, you know, you would think that he would appear to his disciples in Jerusalem and say, okay, here we are, we're in Jerusalem, this is the perfect place to get everything started. But instead, they get direction to go back to Galilee, to a mountain that they are shown, which to me evokes the whole Sermon on the Mount sort of scene. Mm -hmm. And then the Great Commission then is go and therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing in, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all these things that I have commanded you, and he's back in Galilee on a mountain. Mm-hmm. And so there's some way in which the pattern of his life, he, that he wasn't just giving this pattern of his life and suffering and dying for us, but he was he was showing us how to live, and he was demonstrating in a, in a way that the Hebrew prophets did. They would not just say what they meant. They would act out what they meant as well. And so I was just wondering if you could comment about those things. Well, first of all, um, we're not going to talk about Greek here, but in Matthew 28, 16, it is possible uh, to, to translate this, um, the, the 12 or the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee unto the mountain where Jesus had commanded them. That is a possible translation of the Greek. And uh-huh. if that is the case, then that would be a clear reference back to the Sermon on the Mount. The other thing is that this all that I have commanded you for everybody always sends them first back to the Sermon on the Mount. Because when you think of what Jesus commanded, that's the initial discourse, that's the biggest discourse, that's the most memorable one. So even if it's not the same mountain, uh, it's inevitable that you um, think uh, uh, about this discourse. And I, I do think that it's really important that he says, don't just teach them what I've taught you to observe, which is the same thing that you get at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what you you do. And so, again, that would take me back to Albert Schweitzer and the words that, that you quoted earlier. Um it's one thing to read, and it's one thing to think, and it's one thing to theologize, but um, that's not what Matthew is about. 
in in Matthew 25, when you get to the sheep and the goats, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not uh, there's nothing there about your theology or confession or what matters at least in that passage is what you did, what you did uh, for for other people, and that's part of what Matthew's gospel is all about and I think gets in line with what Jesus was all about. Uh, and I think it's in line with what Schweitzer tried to do with the, the second half of his life. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, the interviews I've gotten to do with you. I, I, I got into your first book, uh, Night Comes, and uh, thought that was really interesting and then encountering mystery. And then I thought to myself, well, the man is a... Uh, he is a he is a New Testament scholar. He's a he. he I mean, he really his his main emphasis uh, in the scholarly r- world has been work on the historical Jesus. So I I thought, well, I need to read your book on the historical Jesus, and I need to talk to you about that too. You get into so many different topics in your in your scholarship, and you write about so many different things that I've, I've really enjoyed uh, the time that I've gotten to uh, read your books, and I uh, really enjoyed. Uh, the interviews that I've got to do with you and the, and the chance to meet you uh, through the realm of um, through the realm of podcasting. And I just uh, wish you well in your continued uh, uh, continued scholarship. And uh, if we have a chance to do a podcast again in the future, I think that would be a good thing. Well, thank you. I've, I've had a good time. I've appreciated these little, uh, whatever we call them, I guess, conversations. Is that what yeah, they I are? I guess so. <laughs> uh, okay, conversations. But but you know your comment that uh, you know I do several things. I just think life is absolutely fascinating, and it would be tragic just to do one thing. There are so many things that are interesting and fascinating. And uh, if you're a writer, and I'm lucky to be able to write, how can you not write on multiple subjects? Uh, anything else would be boring. Yeah. Well, well, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you again for your time. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.